Father, we thank you for the Psalms. Thank you that the Psalms give us words to express how we feel about you. Thank you that the Psalms speak to our hearts. Thank you that the Psalms point us to the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would open our ears this morning, that we might hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you chop the Bible anywhere, one message that will likely ring loud and clear pretty much wherever you chop it is that God is great and he is in charge. In one sense, that's the message of the heart of the Bible. That is the message at the heart of this psalm. But if we're honest, it's the kind of message that we struggle to believe, isn't it? It's a slightly strange thing that we are here in Psalm 96 again. I need to acknowledge that we were here just a few weeks ago with Dan Brown. Um, So if this psalm has a few deja vus, um, that is really (laughs) because we were here three weeks ago. Um, It was through a slight admin oversight on my part. There was an email conversation going on with Dan. Ideas to preach on May. Psalm 96 is a good one, having forgotten that I'd already planned um, this to be the start of our Christmas psalm series. Um, like a London bus. I think if you look back at the, the church website, we've not preached on Psalm 96 for at least 15 years. And then you get two in a month. <laughs> Maybe God's trying to tell us something, apart from my admin errors. Um, Dan, did, Dan did a great job helping us to get into the, the mindset of the psalmist, though. The people of God at this point, do you remember, they are nothing. They are teeny, tiny, minuscule. They are surrounded and overshadowed by the nations around, huge powerful, impressive nations who who worship multiple gods who seem to be so powerful. And yet here is Israel, the people of God, singing that their God is the God, that their God is great and he is in charge. And yet is God great? Is God in charge? Various levels, it's a pretty dark season. Think about the international global news at the moment. Is, is he, is God great? Is he in charge? Come down a notch, think nationally. The political mess surrounding us at the moment. Think stabbings in London. Think, is he, is, is God great? Is he in charge, really? Or for us as a church? Think of the collective pain that our body is going through as individuals suffer. Think personally. Maybe it's that relationship breakdown. Maybe it's the mess and the chaos of life. Maybe it's work or unemployment or financial worries or just Christmas coming again. Are you kidding? Or or it's singleness or marriage or kids or or worries about the future. It'll vary for each of us, but no doubt there'll be things for each of us that keep us awake at night, that bring us anxiety and concern. Is he? Is God great? Is he in charge? But look at verse 10 that Tom read for us. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Or verse 3, declare his glory, his marvellous deeds. Or verse 4, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. So in the psalmist's mind, because of the fact that he reigns, because of what he does, because of who he is, there's a call to worship him, the whole world to worship God. That's one of the things that Dan brought out so nicely, that tension of 
of who God is and we know how we ought to respond and yet then we know the reality of our experience. We know Monday morning. We know the muck and the mess of normal life. So what we'll do this week and for the next few as we look ahead to Christmas is look through some of these psalms, but if you like, we're going to be wearing our Christmas spectacles. We're going to consider the incarnation. We're going to consider God the Son taking on flesh and coming to live among us. And so to recognize something of that tension, the God who reigns and who rules and who ought to be praised by the whole earth for all time and yet was born as a baby in a manger. Fragile and tiny. It feels like a paradox. It feels like it won't work. And yet what we'll see is that God's wisdom is so much greater than ours. And these psalms in the 90s are traditionally read in a number of churches around and about Christmas Day. Actually, I found, I didn't know until this week, but Psalm 96 is, is traditionally read on Christmas Eve. Maybe you sense something of that hope at the end as Tom read it for us. If you're a note taker, um, first point on the screen there. Sing to the Lord all the earth, verse 1 to 6. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. This is a psalm about unadulterated singing. Praising God all the time. It's, it's singing to the Lord. Do you notice in verse 1 and verse 2? That's capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh, if you remember. And we think both powerful, covenant-keeping, awesome and mighty, rescuing his people from Egypt, God. And yet with powerful comes personal. He, he revealed his name to Moses. It's the both and. It's the power and the personal. And the archetypal Old Testament example of this kind of action, his salvation there in verse 2, his, his marvellous deeds in verse 3, were, were very often his rescue of his people from Egypt. There the ideas in mind as the psalmist speaks about those things. There his marvellous deeds of salvation. That is, the, that is the foundation of God's salvation through the Old Testament. But that's not a new song, is it? Sing to the Lord a new song, verse 1. That's an old song. That's the song that they've sung for years. That's their story. That's the annual looking back of God's kindness at Passover. And so how are we singing a new song? Well, I take it it's a new song because new people are being taught the words. There's a new choir involved in the singing, new rehearsals going on. This is all the earth called to sing of God's deeds. Israel's history becoming their history. Israel's song becoming our song. Did you spot as well the verbs change? You see, verse 1a, sing. Verse 1b, sing. Verse 2a, sing, but then verse 2b, proclaim, and verse 3, declare. We move from singing to proclaiming and declaring. It's no longer song words on our lips, but truth words on our lips. Therefore, tell them, he says, tell them what you're singing about. Tell them the story that you're singing. 
And that's natural. When something really excites us, we tell people the news, don't we? The, the engaged woman always ready to show off the diamond on her left finger. The film lover who's just seen their new favourite film and they've got to tell everybody about it. Who's seen Frozen 2? The, the bargain hunter who has just struck gold at TK Maxx and they can't stop themselves from telling everybody. The Oxford United supporter who's blown away by their form this season. When's it going to end? The, the new grandparents who are just bubbling over with excitement. We're always ready to talk about the things that are important to us. You, do, you see it beautifully with the kids, don't you? When perhaps you, you've got friends round, your kids, the, the kids that you know, their hearts are captivated by some good news and they just blurt out something brilliant that happened at school. X got in the gold book. Y got full marks in their spellings, whatever it might be, and the dinner guests hear all about it, whoever they are. They can't help themselves just talking. We share news that's good. Well, so as we sing and as we rejoice, then we proclaim and we declare the truth about God. And the content of those, those songs, those words, well, verse 4 and 5. Firstly, he is real. He is to be feared. It's worth fearing him. The, the gods of the nations, however powerful they might seem to be, are, are useless, are nothing, are worthless. For them, they would be gods of, of, of metal, of gold, silver, iron, bronze, maybe wood crafted by human hands. They're the idols of the nations, verse 5. For us, probably less so, gods of bricks and mortar, maybe. The houses that we long for. How do you buy in Oxford? The God, gods of metal or paper or numbers in our savings account that make us feel secure. The gods of fabric and clothing and the things that we wear to give an image or an impression. The gods of esteem and friendship and reputation and likes so we feel good about ourselves. The the idols of the nations that we so easily bow down to and that shape us. And yet the psalmist says, verse 4 and 5, he made the heavens, he made you and me, he deserves our worship. Not these things. And yet our hearts wonder. We need to pull into a slight lay-by, as we sometimes do at this point, um, maybe you've got friends or family, or maybe even this is your question, and you're saying, why should we worship God? What kind of a God needs us to praise him? Does he just have some kind of almighty ego that, that needs to be stroked? Is that what's, what's going on in this psalm and psalms like it? It's a good question. It's a common question. It's, a, it's one that you're not alone with. Many have brought that up. It's a big barrier for, for some. Um, let me give you an example. C.S. Lewis, and many of you all know, was a professor at Oxford and a writer of Christian apologetics and children's books and all that kind of stuff. Um, he was slow to come to Christ. He was in his uh, 29, late, late 20s, when he became a Christian finally. And he says in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, that one of the barriers in coming to believe in the God of the Bible, presumably these kinds of psalms, was the constant demand from God for people to praise him seemed to him to picture God as craving, and I quote, um, for our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. 
That was how C.S. Lewis put it. I think we can probably say I'm a vain person. But, but is that what God is like? A, a vanity? He just needs our, our compliments and our stroking? Is he insecure? More recently, a man called Eric Rees, an American author who wrote an American gospel on family history and the kingdom of God, um, historian, he says this, speaking of Jesus, he says, who is the egomaniac speaking these words? Who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him more so than we should love our own fathers and sons? It, it just seemed like an incredible, incredible egomaniacal kind of claim to make. Is that what's going on? Does Jesus have a, a massive ego that needs stroking? What's going on in these psalms when, we're, when God is calling us to worship and when the psalmist is pointing us to him and saying, you must worship God? Why does God need that? Does he need that? I think it's a good question. A stab at a bit of an answer would be, I think we're judging God on our own terms. As if he were like us. We are too aware of our own failings, our own sin and corruption, political tyrants, workplace tyrants, tyrants in your life, people who demand our worship of them, but who don't deserve it. But that's not what God is like. So let me ask a question. Why did God create the world as he did? How, how did he design it like this? That is, with him at the centre... He is the kind, generous, loving king. He is the fountain of love, with love spilling out to his people. He is the one in whom it all fit, holds together. He is the one described as love, as we've already sung this morning. And so he is the only one who deserves our worship, every aspect of our lives, our praise. He's not the tyrant who lords it over us. He's the loving father who wants what's best for us. And he knows that if we come and worship him and focus on him, and, and it's living as we were made to live, in the order that he designed it all to be. If we worship him and not these idols of verse 5 who will promise us so much but never satisfy, if we worship him, then we will be truly happy because he is the, he is the foundation of life and goodness and love. And then we will have lasting joy. Because we're in the relationship which we were created for. Now, God's not some egomaniac who needs us to worship. Rather, he knows how he made the world and he knows how good he is and how much he wants to bless. So our problem, firstly, is that we cynically judge God to be like one of us, someone unworthy, someone unworthy to follow or to worship. But one person put it like this. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not the act of a needy ego, but an infinite act of giving. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be fully God until he gets it, but that we won't be happy until we give it. This is not arrogance, this is grace. This is not egomania, this is love. God knows that we are most happy, most joyful, most content, most the people we were made to be when we are in a relationship with him and satisfied by him rather than these idols which let us down. And so the psalmist calls us to praise this God, to sing to its creator. Of course, one of the amazing themes that you see at Christmas 
that Christmas highlights the incarnation, and you see Jesus is not some proud and full of ego king, but also that he is for everyone. It's a time of praise for all people, whether it be the outcast shepherds at the bottom of the pile, whether it be the magi kings who travel from far afield from Gentile countries, or whether it's the singing choirs of angels in the shepherd's field. The the birth of Jesus shows us the kind of reach his ministry would have. And indeed, the end of the gospel show us Jesus sending the disciples out to the nations to bow the knee and to worship him, sing to the Lord all the earth. Christmas says to us. The psalmist moves on from verse 6, and in one sense, the focus narrows down. The setting changes, and we seem to be in the temple. Now, remember in the Old Testament that the temple was built by Solomon, by David's son. It was at the very heart of the life of worship of the people of God. Um, There they would be taught about God and there they would worship God and bring their sacrifices to him. And so it's here, verse 8, that we, you see, we bring our offering. Or verse 9, we worship the Lord. You're at the temple and that is what you do at the temple. You hear about God and you praise him. But again, we might be scratching our heads because... How does this happen? How can you call the nations en masse to the temple? This was a a place for the people of God to come and worship. Not every Tom, Dick and Harry from all over the world. The Gentile courtyard would come later at Herod's temple, but not now. So how can the psalmist call all you families of nations to come to the temple to worship? What's going on? Again, Christmas, I think, helps here. Throughout the Bible, you would know God's plan was to bless the world. Adam and Eve's sin had global consequences, and so it needs a global solution to deal with it. The whole of creation was broken, and so everything needs to be fixed again. And so God makes a promise to a man called Abraham in Genesis 12. From his family would be a source of blessing for the nations. And you can work through the Bible, and you see the the solution being fulfilled, partially worked out. Individuals from the nations joining the people of God. Do you remember when the folks come up from Egypt, there were some who were with them, who were from Egypt. Or you get unlikely people like Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho in Joshua 2, or, or Ruth from Moab in the book of Ruth. And yet this whole wholesale kind of worship that we've been waiting for, it, well, in Psalm 96, it doesn't quite track with what's going on. So when it says, verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, or ascribe to the Lord glory due to his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, tremble before him all the earth, that they can't do that. It doesn't work at this point. What's going on? Well, even if they can't do it, it is what they should be doing. He didn't just make the people of Israel, he made the heavens and the earth, he made everyone. So perhaps in one sense, it's slightly polemic, it's controversial. He's saying, come on guys, out of the world of make-believe, with your false gods and your idols that you've created by your own hands, come and worship the real God who made everything. But you wonder, in another sense, perhaps he's writing more than he knows. 
Maybe he's writing with hope. It's a hopeful psalm that looks ahead from the darkness to the light. Because he points ahead to when the nations will do that and when one will come and will make that kind of worship possible. Which is why Christmas again helps us. It's why Matthew in his gospel will spend so long in the first four chapters or so trying to convince us that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. He's the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he fulfills prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And finally, Matthew ends up with a temple curtain being torn and access being available. The nations in the temple worshipping. Nothing will ever be the same again. All are welcome now. Or it's why John in his gospel, even with no birth narrative about Jesus, in chapter 2, Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt, yet not a temple of bricks and mortar, but a temple of his body. He is now the place of worship. And so whatever our backgrounds, we can come. Worship him. Jesus, the one from Abraham's line, who who foundationally blesses the nations through his death and through his sacrifice. He is the temple. I think I've said this before, but it's one of my favorite misunderstandings of Christmas, so I'm going to say it again. Um, It's it's an interview with a guy called Robert Crampton, or it's an article by a guy called Robert Crampton in the Times from a number of years ago. Um, And he's moaning about We Three Kings as a a carol. I don't like We Three Kings very much, but what he says is really helpful. Um, So he says, I do love a Christmas carol. The tunes, naturally, but also the words. So much more optimistic than the doom-laden death cult lyrics served up in many hymns the rest of the year. Kind of stuff we sing on a Sunday, perhaps. Um, Except the last verse of We Three Kings, he says. And and otherwise, jaunty number. (laughs) is always a bit of a downer especially when sung by some adorable kid with her whole life ahead of her. Myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume, breeze of life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. Crikey, cheers for that, he says. And then he continues, he says, When is the penny going to drop with Christianity? Death, martyrdom, suffering, pain, loss, blood these are not concepts with which any brand would want to be identified if that's the core of your message no wonder you've got a problem thanks robert (laughs) it's human wisdom of course it is and yet yet those things are at the heart of christmas that is why christmas matters so much because it means that people like you and people like me perhaps or indeed people all around the world today Remember that wave of praise that Dan spoke of? People able to worship God now, able to ascribe glory and strength to the covenant-keeping God through Christ to come to the place of worship and to worship the Lord. Why would we do this? Well, look, end of verse 10. There's a future certainty. He will judge the peoples with equity, he says. It's a profoundly missional psalm. There's a knowledge that he will judge in the future. The world is going somewhere. And so it's a psalm that ends up calling us to call others to praise him. And so thirdly, praise the Lord, all of creation, verse 11 to 13. (coughs) Maybe you're still worrying. 
Maybe there's that niggling doubt in the back of your mind from the beginning. Is God great? Is he in charge, really? And you look at that thing and you think, hmm, really? You look at that situation from your past, you think, really? You look at your life now and you think, really? Is God great? Is he in charge? Well, the Bible says yes. Yes, he is both. Maybe we don't see it now, but we know the tension of that reality, the frustration and pain and conflict and tears in the night. And yet the Bible will still maintain that he is great and he is in charge. Firstly, it's worth saying elsewhere, and we're looking at Romans 8 um, in the new year, but when it feels like prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, we need to remember that he is using everything for our ultimate good, but our ultimate good is not an easy life. Our ultimate good is not comfort. Our ultimate good is something more than that. It's making us more like Christ, ultimately. His plans and purposes being brought to pass. But secondly, if you look at 11 to 13, you will see it won't be like this forever. It won't be like this forever. And there is the psalmist straining on tiptoes with his binoculars to his eyes, excited, breathless, pulse racing, because he sees what's to come. Because he sees the reality of the hope that is to come. This is not it. This is not all there is. It might feel dark, but but light is coming. God's story is not yet finished. And so do you see how this new song ends? Let the heavens rejoice, verse 11. Let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. You see how it ends? Every last inch of creation rejoicing and glad and jubilant and singing once more because the Lord is coming. It's as if all of creation has been longing for its maker to return And suddenly we look ahead and we see Genesis 3 undone. We see that the heavens and the earth and the the seas and the fields and the trees singing for joy. They are singing now. At the beginning it was us. Now it's all of creation singing, drawn into this party of jubilation. Why? Because the Lord comes. Because the one who made them by his word is returning. His his reign will be seen by all and he will come to judge righteously. To judge the peoples in his faithfulness. That's where we are now, isn't it? That's why it's appropriate for us at the first Sunday of Advent to start with this psalm. Because there we are on tiptoes, looking ahead. Advent's a time of waiting, a time where Christians... Remember the wait for Jesus. We, we firstly, we put ourselves in the shoes of those first waiters looking ahead to the Messiah coming. And we count the days down with our daily chocolate. But we wait for the Messiah. We wait for God the Son who, who takes on flesh, who comes as Emmanuel to be with us. Because of the darkness, 
then we can appreciate the, the light even more, perhaps. Without the darkness, we might not realize how good the light is. But we don't just put ourselves in the shoes of those initial waiters. We ourselves are waiting for him to come again. Verse 13. He comes to judge the earth and will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This, this isn't a fairy tale with a glib and they all lived happily ever after. This isn't Disney. No, we're, we're confident because just as God promised he would come, and he did. And just as Jesus promised he would rise, and he did. And so just as he promised he would return, well, then he will. We can be confident. We know Jesus is coming back because we can trust his words. He, he's been once as saviour and rescuer. He will come again as judge now, as righteous judge. Which is a sobering reality to end on, isn't it? Maybe it's a reality that we struggle to remember. Maybe even it's a reality that we struggle to believe. It might be that you, you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or a, you're a wobbling Christian, drifting. Friends, we need to be reminded at times that being a Christian is not just a hobby or a lifestyle choice. It's not just the air conditioning to an otherwise okay life. It's deadly serious. The Bible says when Jesus comes back, everyone will be judged. From, from Blackbird Lees to Brighton to Baghdad to the Bahamas, wherever, all will be judged by this absolute righteousness. And at the same time, that sounds really good because we hate injustice and we long for justice. But it's bad news too because we realize how pure and holy God is. And, and we, we long for justice, but suddenly we realize we condemn ourselves. We know the darkness and the sin within. And his standard for this righteous judging it's not arbitrary, it's not some line just drawn somewhere, it's a, you know, 70% and above, you'll be fine. No, it's, it's perfection, it, it leaves us all in the dock. We end up condemning ourselves as we long for justice. The question is, what do we do? The answer is we go back to the intro of the psalm again. Because you see, it's not the song of the Exodus that we sing. It's not the song of God's rescuing his people from slavery to the Egyptian oppressors. No, that pointed ahead to a bigger rescue. That rescue is our song. It's the song of Christmas, but it's the song of Easter. God's mighty acts that we sing of are his rescuing us from sin. And so we call the nations to sing with us. Let me lead us in prayer.